0: You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Good morning. As the children are moving to their space, I'm I'm, um, inclined to just uh, just make a small mention you know when whenever you talk to uh, Matt and I, I think probably maybe all of you have and and you make the well or you take the opportunity to to just discuss with him maybe what the topic of your sermon will be or a book or a scripture you're always going to get to leave his office with a book and it's always a good one and the conversations are always good Matt I really they are and very formative and so I got this great uh, commentary on mark from Matt it's called the story of God by commentary by Timothy Gombas, and it compelled me to think, well, after reading it, and it was a huge distraction to me writing my sermon, and finally on Friday said, I got to put this down so I can actually maybe write something for today. And so Mark is a, it's a different book, and we're coming out of the, out of the book of Mark today from 724 through 37, but uh, Mark is a different uh, kind of book than Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark is a dramatic gospel. It, it's filled with fast-paced action moving from at this episode to that incident before you really have time to digest it and really think about what just happened. Mark's writing are said to kind of move at breakneck speed. And, you know, but we really, we should read it at a snail's pace when reading it, lest we miss the lesson or the intentionality. Many say, including including Timothy, he says that Mark's writings are intentional in jarring its readers. Maybe that is the purpose, to get your attention. And so in Mark's gospel, Jesus is often this. He's confrontational. He speaks to various characters in a shocking, rude, and mystifying way. Mark tells the stories in a certain way, and he does this, I believe, to shape our imaginations, the imagination of his audience and the readers, and to do this, to effect transformation among them. So I like to look back very quickly before I move into the scripture for today, just so you can know kind of where we are in this narrative to understand the significance of the placement of these particular verses we're going to talk about today, why we would even be talking, what was he setting us up for? And so this encounter that we're going to read today comes just after Jesus had reoriented the Pharisees' conception of who is inside the kingdom and who is outside the kingdom. These are verses 1 through 23 in, in uh, the seventh uh, book of Mark. And so he made this point that it's irrelevant whether one measures up to a social group's culturally constructed standard of holiness. What matters is a person's holistic orientation towards God, their perspective, seeing, hearing, understanding, and responding to God. In other words, rather than assessing the dressed-up external appearance that meets the evaluation of others, God evaluates people based on who they truly are. He evaluates them in their heart. So Jesus' conversation today that we'll read with the serophoenician woman and then as he heals the deaf mute man relate directly to the point in emphatic fashion and we move into verses 24 through 37. So you can read along with me Mark 7 24 through 37 it'll be it's in your Bibles and it will be on the screen. It says from there he set out and went away to a region of Tyre. He entered a house that uh, and didn't want really anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed at his feet. And now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, for saying that, you may go. The demon had taken to the region of Tyre, from the region of Tyre, and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. They brought him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And he took him aside in private, away from the crowd and put his fingers in his ears and spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, if that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, these are challenging scriptures, at least from a preaching standpoint. One of the things that Matt says, is, why don't we take a hard scripture? Let's encourage you to preach on Susan. Let's just do that. And so I was like, I know, and I tried, I tried very hard to look at, this is a lectionary scripture, you know, there's a great calendar that we have, a a three-year calendar that will take you all the way through the Bible, and this just happens to be the lectionary verse for today, and I really want to do like a proverb or a psalm, I, I didn't really want to, but I kept getting led back to it. So we're a little bit disturbed as we kind of read through these verses at the response to the woman's plea for help. And then after the deaf man is healed, Jesus is like, now, now, don't tell anyone. Apparently he said that to them over and over again. There's lots of details and moments in this short account to supply several sermons. But for today, placing them side by side presents us with two particularly rich and provocative examples of God's power at work among us, and his power to transform our hearts and to transform communities. I feel like, uh, you know, I'm gonna have to kind of go at breakneck speed, so I'm gonna try to intentionally keep my speech slow because I naturally talk fast. As we camp on a few of these details in these passages, I pray that by the end of this day or the end of this morning, uh, what I hope for is for you to see is that the transformation that does take place. There's a change of heart, the trust, the boldness of Jesus to somewhat shake them into an understanding, to understanding his point in the in these opening verses of chapter 7, the ones that I kind of set us up with. So these two stories, well, they've got some stuff in common. They're both in Gentile territory. In both stories, the person who are healed are not approached. They don't approach Jesus alone. They're aided by other people. The young girl is freed of demon possession because her mother, pleads on her behalf. The deaf man is brought to Jesus by friends who beg for his healing. And these stories, it's not about the faith of the disabled person that brings about their healing, but the active faith of their companions. And so finally, in both of these stories, we witness something more than physical healing. Their lives and those of their communities are changed forever. And we recognize that further transformation has taken place in Jesus, who experiences a change of heart, a shift in direction as he ministers among the Gentiles. Did Jesus get a renewed energy when he realized the faith of this Gentile woman? Like, finally, somebody who understands after being unaccepted by his family, by his town, by his disciples' unbelief, when the man who is deaf and mute can hear and speak, we hear a gospel word of hope that all of us who have blocked ears or have failed to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others, the gentleman's ability to perceive was impaired. You know, the parable of the sower and the seed kind of starts off in Mark 4, and it Well, it fairly well overshadows all of these scriptures through from Mark 4 to Mark 8. Jesus warned them in these, all of the stories of these scriptures, that there would be those who see but do not perceive, and those who hear but do not understand. So it's hard not to park our brains on the unusualness of this passage. Why is Jesus entire of all places so distant from rural Galilee in terms of mileage as well as culture? Why is he apparently alone and seeking to elude everyone's notice? How did this woman learn about him and find him? And last and certainly not least, why did he respond to the woman in a way that he did? And with what appears to be just a coarse word, and why did he tell the deaf and mute friends to not tell anyone? Why was he so insistent about that? So he entered the house, and he didn't want anyone to know that he was there. Why... Didn't he want anybody else to know? Well, let me just stack a few things up that happened just prior to this. Maybe it's because his cousin John had recently been murdered. Maybe it's because just before this he had faced criticism from the Pharisees and the scribes about the disciples eating with unwashed hands. Maybe it's because he's been on a whirlwind tour feeding the hungry, healing the sick, teaching tough crowds... Jesus was bereaved. He was fatigued. He was besieged, and no wonder he didn't want anyone to know he was there. But he could not escape notice. And she came, and she bowed at his feet, stretched out her hands, and asked. You know, what if she had had not had faith enough that Jesus could help her to even ask him? But she did. And I wonder where the faith came from. You know, it's, she'd never met him. She'd only heard of him. And I guess really at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. She just needed a little bit of faith. And that faith, that's just that wonderful gift from God. You know, we don't have to earn faith, it's said. Uh, John Wesley, you know that guy, that founder of Methodism, you might have heard of him. In one of his sermons called Works, he told his listeners, faith is not a mere agreement to the truth of the Bible, the articles of our creeds, or all that is contained in the Old and the New Testament. But it is over and above. Faith is a sure trust in the mercy of God through Christ Jesus, and it is a confidence in a pardoning God. And so she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter she had a crumb of confidence and that was enough to make her persist. And even when it seemed like he was disrespecting her, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus, as you know, he was a Jew, he was a rabbi, and he was a man. And she was a three strikes against you and you're out kind of person, a Gentile, a woman, an unaccompanied woman, and a woman with a daughter who had a demon. You know, in Jesus' day, her daughter's debilitating illness or seizures, uh, which the text calls demon possession, would be viewed uh, by some as a punishment for sin in those days. And he called her a dog, uh, using this term of disrespect commonly used by Jews to refer to Gentiles as unclean. In her desperation, she comes back at him with a wise retort that reveals that she is certainly not a dog. Rather, she is a lioness. Sir, she said, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Was he disrespecting her? Or was he using that rabbinic method of matching wits to teach those standing around that his message was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews? We have no clue to his affect. You know, what was the expression on his face? How, what was his posture? We don't have any clue about this, but three things do come to mind. He went to Tyre where he knew that there would be Gentiles. It was primarily Gentile territory. If he's dissing her, he contradicts his usual pattern of saving his rudeness for those in religious and political power and treating with tenderness those supplicants, those that come to him with needs. And so right before this, he teaches that it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. So would he just turn right around and say these words to this woman with a straight face? Some questions will always remain in the shadow of this picture, and then others catch light, maybe like her determined face. So strong was her desire for her daughter's healing that she dared to match wits with Jesus, sir, she said. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, for saying that, you may go, and the demon has left your child for saying that. Hmm. Does her faith in Jesus' healing power take Jesus by surprise? Her faith is greater than that of his own people, including the members of his hometown, among whom he could not perform deeds of power because of their unbelief. So we certainly take notice of the shocking nature of Jesus' words, but we certainly need to explore the shocking nature of the woman's response. She accepted Did you hear it? She accepted his priority of ministering first to the people of Israel, yet she is not satisfied with this. Her faith calls for a larger vision of God's mission to the Gentiles. Jesus immediately recognizes the God-given wisdom of her words, changes his mind, and commends her outspokenness. And if you read this account in Matthew, Matthew, it says, where she is commended for her faith, not her outspokenness. And so in light of her words, Jesus does not simply have second thoughts. His vision invocations seem radically reoriented. We do not sense the diminishment of Jesus' power through this exchange, but an expansion of it as he blesses her heart's desire and heals her daughter. However unsettling this exchange may be, this, its resolution really reveals that God is not unchanging and unresponsive, he's compassionate He's merciful. And in the second episode, the next episode, where he heals the deaf and mute man, we're disturbed by his command uh, to keep silent about what he's just done. Hmm, I wonder why. You know, there's so much that can be said regarding even just this moment. All that spitting and, you know, touching, all that. Secret keeping and all that that he did. You know, perhaps he ordered them not to speak. Maybe he ordered them not to speak because Jesus was concerned about their speaking prematurely without knowing the fullness of his suffering, death, and resurrection to come. See, in, in Mark's gospel, you know, Jesus is the focus in Mark's gospel. But if we isolate Jesus from his mission, we tragically misunderstand him. Jesus is God's appointed agent of kingdom rule, the one through whom God's kingdom comes into being. He is the king who rules on God's behalf and the events that lead up to Jesus' crucifixion constitute his procession to coronation, if you will, his death on the cross. And so perhaps Jesus understood even really at that moment that words are sometimes just unnecessary. And whatever the case... Suddenly, this man is able to hear and communicate with those around him. Not only is he physically healed, he is restored to his community, just as the woman and her daughter are. So, just backing up just a little bit, immediately after leaving Tyre and healing the woman's daughter, Jesus goes kind of a new way. He cures a man who can't hear, he can, and that who can barely speak. He feeds 4,000. Those events occur apparently in Decapolis. It's a region, again, chiefly populated by Gentiles. And although Mark doesn't call attention to the ethnic identity of these people, it seems Jesus takes the Syrophoenician mother's wisdom to heart. The timeline has been accelerated. Gentiles receive blessings too. Even now, I would dare say that the woman's persistence benefits more than just one little girl. Her persistence persuades and encouraged and enlightened Jesus to do a new thing in his ministry, you know, what seems like maybe even with a renewed energy. I've heard it said and read through one of my commentaries that desperate resolve equals faith. You know, I thanks be to God for this tenacious Serophoenician theologian who put her hand out don't lose track of the simplicity of her achievement. Her theology doesn't originate in books and study. Her theology is an expression of painfully experienced need and fierce motherly love. I'm convinced the woman exemplifies faith, not just logic or logos. Matthew's version of this story says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done to you as you wish. She makes us consider what faith even means. Notice especially her persistent efforts. She refuses to believe even a tiny speck of grace isn't out of reach and knowing that just a scrap can make a difference for her and for her daughter. And in the end, her trusting acceptance, her willingness to just take Jesus at his word and journey home alone to confirm her daughter's healing. Who says things like desperation and tenacity, persistence or doggedness aren't the same thing as faith when that desperation and tenacity are brought to Jesus? In Mark, faith is hardly about getting Jesus' name right or titles right or nailing the right confession or articulating proper doctrine. It's about clinging to Jesus and expecting him to heal and to restore and to say. It's about demanding that he do what he said he came to do. And so often, we're reluctant to ask. We're reluctant to speak our faith with others, and we find very good reasons to keep quiet. I myself have probably said these things. You may believe that uh, your actions speak more loudly than words. We may be afraid of the inadequacy of our speech. We may fear that we will make a mistake or alienate those to whom we are speaking. You know, this sequence of stories is perhaps especially appropriate, I think, for this Sunday. We have moved through a great sermon series, the reboot series that Matt offered us, just an opportunity to just look at some different visions of Jesus, and now we're just going to kind of reboot, aren't we? Connection classes are beginning, new opportunities for learning and connectedness open up, renewed opportunities for mission as we serve our neighbors in the South. You know, spiritual nourishment for the faithful is of course essential and we need it to fill our sails up, to put some wind behind our sails, to encourage us and renew our energy. But the congregation's mission cannot end there. Like Jesus himself, his disciples are continually called to a larger vision of mission, one that aims to embrace the outsider, the stranger, and even the enemy. You know, these miracles are not mere displays of power or simply expressions of compassion. They are divine acts of reversal. They reverse the brokenness of the world. The deaf can hear, the mute can speak, the dead live, chaos is conquered, and the demons are defamed a new world, the kingdom of God, the reign of God is emerging. Jesus is the presence of the reign of God in the world, which brings healing, peace, justice, and righteousness. The characters in both of these stories encourage us to share whatever glimpse of God's mercy, love, and truth we have witnessed. Their stories and their words remind us to focus our attention on God and to keep pointing others toward the reign of God, proclaimed by Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let us pray.